My lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Mm. Don't want to do that. Do not neglect his word, okay? That's what we don't want. We don't want you to neglect his word. Let's see. What did I do with this? i got to go back up two more pages. Put this blue piece of paper here. All right, then. <clears throat> Let's see. we got some prayer requests and some other things here. Uh, <clears throat> I think I mentioned this last week. Anyway, I, I didn't cross it out, so maybe, I don't know. Silas needs $600 to settle food and books, and I know I haven't sent it, so... Uh, anyway, okay, Nazir in Pakistan. Uh, he uh, emailed and he says he needs $234 for 26 mosquito nets for poor people. They're $9 each. And uh, I lived in um, Siesta Key back before they had anything to take care of mosquitoes. And I can tell you, if you don't have a net, it is miserable. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we went to Malaysia and miserable. So um, uh, if you can want to help them with uh, mosquito nets. I mean, they're poor enough to not be able to afford a mosquito net. That's very poor. Um, and also, I know he hasn't emailed me yet, but I know within the next five or six days, he will have, uh, what is it said, October's Jesus Film uh, planned. And that's going to be, it's right around $500 every month. So you figure it's going to be about $734 we need to take care of Pakistan this month. So if anybody wants to help with that, let me know. And uh, We'll get that squared away, and uh, we'll get him uh, just so much success with that Jesus film. It's, yeah, it's very amazing. wonderful, very I wonderful. Uh, Don and Jody made it safely to Israel. They're having a good time, and they got to spend some time with uh, Sergio and Rhoda's parents. Oh, nice. uh, Jose met them. They were all together, and uh, uh, so they had a good time. But they are scheduled to go to Jericho, and they don't know if they're going to be able to go uh, simply because of the heat. And uh, so they're just asking for people to lift them up to uh, make it possible for the entire group to be able to go to Jericho this year. And then uh, Will Grobe and I woke up last night and I thought I should email Will and I did and he's fine. He's a pastor out in Kansas that used to be here in Sarasota and uh, uh, he's got you know some obvious problems that pastors always have which I have no right to tell you any of them but uh, keep Will Groban in prayer because uh, running a church is very difficult, but he said the uh, uh, the youth ministry is really taking off, and so that's good news. I'm, he's he's good with children, and uh, uh, he's a great guy. So keep Will in prayer out in Kansas, and then uh, Angie here in Sarasota has cancer in her spine. Oh. It's very debilitating, and uh, you know it's just one of those things that once you have spinal cancer, it can go anywhere in the body. So um, keep Nancy and I'm sorry, uh, Angie in prayer. And uh, I, I can't even imagine that. Um, okay, I got, let's see, two things. The first one, <clears throat> this is from last week. I uh, mentioned the voice of the martyrs. And a lady that attends online, she and her sister emailed me. And um, uh, last evening you mentioned voice of the martyrs. I thought this was such a good idea that I let you know, my sister Nancy and I have been writing letters to prisoners for Christ in foreign countries for several years using a system Voice of the Martyrs provides. I'm saying this so that if anybody here wants to do this, you go to Voice of the Martyrs, you can find out these people that are in prison because of their faith, and you can write them. It's easy and convenient. I have attached instructions. If anybody wants them, you can email me or just go to their website. 
um, and so that anyone else in the church who would like to write these people can also do so. I mean, you talk about Don and Jody always talking about writing missionaries. Uh, at least they have contact with the outside world. A lot of Christians in prison probably have none. So it would be nice if people were willing to do that. So if you have time to write a letter a week, please, you know, think about it. If I were in prison, especially for my faith, I would want to receive letters. So I knew my brothers and sisters in Christ were remembering me. But I have heard some object that the prisoners probably don't receive these letters. Well, many who have been released have reported that they did and they were encouraged. I can't imagine. You know, you're sitting there and all of a sudden somebody writes you a letter from America. Somewhere. That, yeah, right. you know, that would be wonderful. So, uh, plus, even if they don't, by these letters uh, being mailed to the prison, someone is aware that we in the U.S. know about what is going on in these countries. Additionally, perhaps the heart of someone scanning the letters will be softened. Who knows how the Lord can use them. So, uh, there you go. Great idea. We'll go ahead and go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to lift these people and these issues up. And uh, we just pray for them. And we pray that uh, it would be something people would be willing to do is to write these people in prison. And uh, if you, we have time, why not use it productively in that way? And uh, Lord, uh, thank you for this class. We just pray that it will be handled properly and that things will be done without, uh, um, you know, without being incorrect and if it is please alert us to it because it's not our intention ever to uh, instruct improperly in the word of God so Lord thank you for this word thank you for Jesus the subject of this word and uh, we just thank you and praise you in his name amen <clears throat> okay so talking about Jesus you know what's that just real quick oh yes Rick called me earlier and he just said to tell everybody hi Rick McCampbell Oh, I just uh, emailed him a little while ago to harass him. And so uh, him and Steve Blazing, I sent him an email and uh, they came back. I told him class starts in a little while and it's been raining. So hurry up. And they said they won't make it tonight. So an 18 hour drive, they're probably not going to make it, but they'll be back here in October, late October. So it'll be good to see him. But good. Well, that's Rick. Yeah. Steve, he'll be here before Rick and Steve's the important one. So <laughs> I'm kidding, guys. Anyway, wonderful, two wonderful guys. They're up in Indiana, Absolutely. and they come down every year, and they just came to mind today. So I thought I'd send him a message, and here he called you. So I get, I get replies. Everything that I send out, and Steve, yeah. he sends something back. He's I mean, very faithful. He is one of a hundred that does Yeah, that. yeah, he's a faithful guy. i got to tell you what. Nice, nice. They both are. They're both yeah. nice people. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, oh, I was going to say... Um, uh, you pray and mention Jesus, and I was cleaning the uh, kitchen and the bathrooms today, and I have to remind myself there was this song that came out, and it's it's not a great song, but it, you know, it probably eight or ten years ago, and it's called "The Heart of Worship." I'm getting back to the heart of worship, and the guy that wrote it was a pastor, and he said I found myself just getting so distracted by being a pastor that I forgot what it's like to just be in love with Jesus. And I have to do that from time to time. And I was thinking that back there. You know, we get so into doctrine sometimes. And don't get me wrong, doctrine is hugely important. Uh, to not have sound doctrine is to uh, basically cut yourself off from any reasonable interaction with the Lord. But um, there's a point where you can argue doctrine so much that you... Uh, I, oh, yeah. I, I was wondering what that was. I thought you got a phone call. Heart of worship. That's it. 
Um, you can argue doctrine so much that you, uh, I, I hope we don't get banned because of that. Once we play music. Did it, anyone actually hear it? Yeah, I'm Was sure there enough can. of it? I don't know, but I, just so you know, don't do that. In, yeah. Okay. Uh, it, they probably would not. Normally what happens is they just, uh, warn they, they warn you and then they can put, they can monetize your video and take the money for it which I don't monetize video. So all the videos that are monetized are because of things like that. Wow. Yeah, so yeah, you don't want to play music that you don't own in a any church. Yeah, I walked around at Grace, remember we, the light show? Mm -hmm. I was walking around with a camera filming the lights and the music was playing in the background and they came and they, they confiscated my videos. Just walking around at, at night taking videos of a light show. So you got to be very careful with it. And, and it, it's not something that it'll happen two months from now. It'll happen within 30 seconds. If I go home, yeah. they will say now you're talking copyright so violation. Yeah. Whoever's like. No, they don't listen to your words. They listen to the music because that's where they make music money from. They don't care about what I say. You know, they, that will come later. They will scan what I say later, but that stuff, they have uh, filters that pick up music immediately, within seconds. It's unbelievable, three, four strain uh, chords, done. Okay, anyway, um, uh, let's see here. Uh, okay, so I, my point was that uh, uh, we can love doctrine so much that we can lose our heart for Jesus, and we don't want to do that, okay? I will argue doctrine all day long because it's right that you were properly trained in theology. All right, and I don't want somebody to, uh, to uh, misdirect you. And so I believe what I teach. I believe that it's proper. I wouldn't teach it otherwise, but uh, we, the main thing that we need to do in our lives is to love the Lord. When we wake up and we see a nice sunrise, we thank the Lord for it. You know, when you, uh, when you have a nice meal and it tastes great, say thank you to the Lord. That's, that's what we need to do. Um, before I type my sermons, I always stop and I talk to the Lord. You know, prepare my fingers for the battle. Uh, it, it, and it's like a battle, going in and trying to figure out what is going on in his words. And, and you know, stay with me through this. And when I get done with the sermon, I always thank the Lord because it's so difficult. It's so tiring. And you just are beat. But, you know, he got you through it. And so uh, keep Jesus above everything else. Keep him above your doctrine. Keep him above everything because there's a point where you can lose that and you don't want to lose your love for the Lord. Okay, somebody emailed me before we get, because it's two Thessalonians and I don't want to wait, the rapture might happen in a couple days. So, um, uh, I, somebody emailed me about a week and a half ago and mentioned, uh, what are the chances of our bodies just being left here at the rapture? And I was like, you know, I'd never really thought about it. All I know is that we're going to be changed and we're going to be with the Lord. We're going to be taken up. And um, uh, my thought has always been, incorrectly because we take things from the Old Testament and we associate them with what's going to happen to us. And Enoch and Elijah were both taken to heaven, right? But that's not a good comparison because for first thing, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind in a chariot and that's not going to happen to us. And secondly, I'm certain that they are the two that are coming back. They will have the same bodies that they have now. Okay, they are, uh, they will come back, they will testify, they will die as the two witnesses. Okay, and even if Enoch doesn't, which people debate that, everybody is certain that Elijah will be one of them, and Jesus indicates that as well. So we got two witnesses, uh, it, it will be Enoch and Elijah, and so we can't take that as an example, but um, anyway, um, I thought 
Okay, and I mentioned it at lunch after the mission work. We were talking about that, and uh, Chris, who was there, she said, well, it says we'll be changed. And so we're going to go up and we're going to be changed. And I said, not necessarily. You know, we don't want to take the, the left-behind books and we don't want to apply them to our lives where people disappear and there's a pile of clothes laying there and, and it, just crazy stuff like that. That, that. That's probably not reality. But I'd never really given any thought as to what would happen. It would be a very, very interesting thing if our bodies were all left behind because then that would give us an excuse. They could say, look at those dead people there. Okay, And so that would be an easy way of settling the great deception. They all, you know, somehow caught a virus or something, you know, whatever. If you don't have bodies, it would make it a little more complicated, but not too complicated. Anyway, so I thought I would look at the word change because it's something I've never studied. Then the word is a lasso. It means to change, alter, exchange, okay, or transform. And the word exchange, let me read this from Thayer's Greek lexicon. Alasso, future, alasso, uh, uh, yeah, alasso uh, uh, would be future. Uh, first aorist would be elaxa, okay, uh, second future passive. Okay, uh, I'm just reading the Greek here. Oh, okay, here's what I wanted. Um, from Aesclius, I, I don't know how you pronounce that guy's name, Aesclius. Um, he's a guy that lived. Um, he was, you know, one of the people that they read the writings of. How do you tell what the uh, Greek, the Koine Greek means? And so if you don't have any reference, any, if you were to take the Greek as it's written in Koine Greek and bring it into today's uh, Greek, it, it's not even the same. It's like reading the King James Version, the original King James Version, and our English. It's not even comparable. So you have to have a a uh, basis for what you're reading. And the basis is the culture of the time. So from this guy, Aesclius, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, whatever, don't correct me. Um, uh, from him down, he was born in 525 to 524 BC and he died in 456, 455 BC. Um, the word means to change. And here's what they say, to cause one thing to cease and another to take its place. So. One is ceasing, the other is taking place. That is the context of the word that we're looking at, okay? They go on, for example, to speak in a different manner according to the different conditions of minds. I'm speaking with this voice, now I'm speaking with this voice. And Paul actually uses that in Galatians 4 verse 20, okay? Uh, to exchange one thing for another is their final conclusion on this word. That's uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon. Hebrews 1, 2 uses the same word. You, Lord, in the beginning uh, laid the foundations of the earth. I'm sorry, 112, Hebrews 1, 12. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed. When you have a garment, you have one garment and you fold it up, put it away, and you get another garment. So it actually could be, and you know, I'd never, I'm not gonna get dogmatic about this, but it makes complete sense because I'd never really thought of it. I just think, you know, the rapture's going to happen. I, I don't care what happens to this body. It doesn't make any difference at all because, as it says, the corruptible cannot inherit the incorruptible. Well, what would, make, what would be the point of taking this and converting it when you just get rid of it and get something new, right? So I would, just having read that, having thought about it for the past uh, five days, because it was Saturday that we uh, talked about it, and I've been studying the Word and other things, I would go with the fact that people are just going to leave their bodies and there's going to be a 
exchange, an immediate exchange from the old garment to the new garment. And I like that because that means that the, uh, the great deception is even easier to explain away. You got all these bodies there. Go ahead. This perishable shall put on. Imperishable. imperishable. That's yeah. right. And this, and he's, he, he says they're going to be changed. That's right. He didn't say we're going to leave something here. You just missed the entire thing that I said. The word means to exchange. It, it, we think of change and we read a verse without reading the Greek, and that's a problem. Actually, you have to look at what it says. The, the word is exchange. The verse you, you just read, though, says the same thing. You take off and put on. That's right. So that you, this so is not that. going, you can't take this and make it holy. Paul calls it corruptible. You're going from what is corruptible to what is incorruptible. On the so, transfiguration now. Okay. The, the disciples knew the, the dead people there that, that were dead. Right. Moses, that, they, they knew them. Right. They knew who Samuel well, was too, and Samuel didn't no, have a body. They, they weren't on the transfiguration. Samuel didn't have a body. Right. You're, you're taking apples and oranges, and you're trying to make a comparison. I'm just making a comment that the word means to exchange. Let me read it one more time. To cause one thing to cease and another to take its place. One thing ceases, another takes its place. To exchange one thing for another. That's I didn't write this, okay? I'm just telling you what it says. And that's why we do these studies, is because if you use the word change, it can mean a lot of different things, okay? And my conclusion, based on that, without getting dogmatic and without arguing this, is that our bodies will be left behind. That is what I would, that's what I would say. It's not whether my body is changed or left here. It makes zero difference to me what happens to this body. Zero. What you said is doesn't negate what that is. It's like basically, okay, if I'm going to get a incorruptible body and it's my body, Jim Dwyer goes like, okay, you're going to have we are going to have like it's going to be recognizably. You're you. the one that so, sent it to me about three weeks ago. C.S. Lewis says we are not a body with a soul. Yeah. We are a soul that has a body. You're right. That is, and he's exactly right in that. Our soul is what matters. This body means nothing. Even Jesus said that. It, it's not something to get arguing about. It's just something that I was reading and I gave a comment. I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah. I'm just, the I'm just made all of it is, is yeah. baffling. And, and you yeah. can think about well, it in a variety of different ways. So it, it, until it happens. Well, that's right. Who knows? But <laughs> so all I'm know. making a point is that how do you explain in the great deception? And that makes that very, very quickly that simplifies would be it. easier to have everyone Way just like, easier. well, it was. Way uh, easier. You don't need to worry about aliens. You don't need to worry about UFOs. You don't need to worry about, you know, uh, ray force beams from outer space by the uh, U.S. government. You don't need to worry about anything. Of that it resolves the problem and your soul is what matters that's what matters and that's why i say with samuel he knew who he was and he had no body he could tell who he was the transfiguration is a completely different dynamic there well it's jesus after the resurrection still had a body they we, we talked about that as well we, we talked about that as well the problem with using that logic is that jesus had to resurrect in his physical body. That is the point of everything in scripture, is that if he did not physically, and that's Jehovah's Witnesses, mm. if he did not physically resurrect in the same body that he was in, we would not have any salvation. 
That is the point of that. When he went to heaven, we have no idea if he uh, assumed a different body, but we can't use Jesus' body anyway because he was without corruption. And so you can't use that. These bodies are corruptible. His wasn't, and he proved that in the resurrection. So once again, you got an apple here, and you've got a whole basket full of oranges over here. We cannot use Jesus' resurrection. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most important doctrines that you can have in all of Scripture. If he did not resurrect in the same body that he was in, we would have no hope at all. It had to be the same body. Once he went into heaven, as he got the same body? It doesn't look like it in Revelation chapter 1, the way he's described there. I don't know. That may just be metaphorical, okay? You know, he's got a, a fire in his eyes and the t- sword coming out of his tongue. That may just be metaphor. But uh, my point is that somebody made a question with me, and rather than just being dogmatic in my head, which I would like to do, is say, yeah, I disagree with that. I said, I'm going to study it. And after a week of studying it and thinking about it, I'm going with our bodies being left behind. The two on the road to Emmaus yes. didn't recognize him. That's right. After he broke bread. That's right. I think they saw the nail prints. Yeah. Anyway. That I don't know. I have no idea. They, 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 but, but you're using, once again, something that could be coming from, there's a word in Genesis 19, which is repeated in the account of Elisha. It's only used twice in the Old Testament. Sanvarim. And it says, in the Ba Sanvarim. In the Sanvarim. It's a word that is used. Uh, Genesis 19 is a picture of the rapture. I don't know if you remember that sermon I did on it, but there's about four or five uh, pictures of the rapture in the Old Testament. In the Sanvarim means that it's a blindness, but it's not a physical blindness. It's a spiritual blindness. And for all we know, the two that were on the way to uh, Emmaus with Jesus had that's Sanvarim, that inability to perceive that it was him, even though he was right there, okay? So once again, I'm not going to argue that, but I think that's not using a good analogy because we had Elisha that had the ability to see thousands of troops around Samaria, and this guy didn't. And so he said, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. So I, I, I don't want to be dogmatic about this. I'm not here to argue. I'm just saying that I think that it's a very good case for what we're going to talk about in 2 Thessalonians 2. And I just don't know if, in fact, we're going to be here. I don't know if I'll be alive, and I thought I'd just bring that up just so it's it's recorded. But once again, I can just see the, the emails coming in tomorrow, people calling me a heretic because our bodies are going to be left behind. That's not my intent here. Who can say? My inti- well, you know, people love I to tear people me. apart. I get it all the time, okay? Right. So I, I, I'm just saying that based on the meaning of the word, based on the context of the Greek word from 495 and down, it means to exchange one thing for another. That's what that word change means. Just because our English says changed doesn't mean that it's what we think it means, okay? So there you go. That's my comment on that. And now we're going to get into 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. seven. Okay. okay. Yeah, it doesn't matter at all. And that's why I said, I don't care what happens to this body. I know this body is not going to be what I have in heaven. I know that. This body is falling apart more every single day. I, yesterday I got up and I... I, I pulled something, and I was in pain all day. And I thought, I just can't wait to get out of here. I just can't wait to, through death or rapture, 
I can't wait to get out of here because I can see where I'm going with this. And in another 30 years, I'm going to be drooling on myself and somebody spoon feeding me, and I don't want that. So, uh, yeah, I know. I, I, I can see. Dr. McGee says it's, it's scriptural to groan. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. He said, in this body we groan. We groan, he absolutely. I just don't want to groan more than I'm groaning now. i got to tell you, i got a lot of work to do every day, and boy, it was tough getting it done yesterday. I was groaning. Oh, wow. Okay, two, uh, one, seven. Okay, start or, at five. Wherever. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy among the kingdom of God, for mm. which you are suffering. Six, God is just. He will pay back troubles to those who trouble you. Seven, and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Okay, now this one, it, it, the structure's a little different, so the blazing fire comes in the next verse. It ah. says, and to give you uh, who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Okay, so the blazing fire's coming later. It's just the way that they did that. So, um, uh, I, I, whatever, I was gonna make a comment, but I won't be um, negative. Okay, um, I, I just, I, the more that I do these daily commentaries and acts, the more frustrated I get with translations. Sure. You know, I, I'm, I'm to the point where I don't even wanna read these anymore. I just wanna read a literal translation, like Smith's or Young's. Right. But it's so hard, you know, if I was to, you know, do the sermons on that, everybody would be like, it, it, it doesn't sound right. But it, to me, it's almost criminal how badly some of these trans... You know, Rhoda found something today. It's in Ezekiel. And I can't remember uh, the exact verse. But anyway, she was reading and she says, there's an error in the New King James Version. Because it says, um, let us, um, basically let us deal together. Okay, uh, the Lord is speaking to Israel. And uh, it, she said, that's not in the Hebrew. There's no us there. And I said, that's an idiom. And I had to explain to her that formal English, which I grew up with under mom and dad, uh, it, they will say things like this. Let us doesn't mean together. When my father would say, let us not have any more of that, it was speaking to me. It's an <laughs> idiom. That's right. And when he said it, it meant I'm in big trouble. And so I explained to her, and I, I even found the idiom after that. I went online and I found the idiom and I said, here, this is how you explain it. But it was a terrible translation to use because it's not even close to the original. Their intent was to say, let us, meaning you behave, basically. But saying let us makes it think like we're going to do something together unless you know the older English, like my dad used to say to us all the time. And so... And then they also used a capital U. And Sergio came and he said, well, why is the, that capitalized? And I said, because he is including himself in it, even though he's not including himself in it. When my dad says, let us, he's saying me over you, not me with you. And so, see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, but it's disappointing when they use words like that when they're not even in the Hebrew or Greek. And when I do these morning commentaries, I'm to the point where I don't use them at all. I just give my own translation because I want it to be a representation of what it says. Even if it's, a, I have to make up a word. One was, uh, uh, what, about uh, two or three weeks ago? The word judicials is not a word. But I added the S on to make it understandable because it was a single word, a single 
descriptor and there's no comparable English language. And so I said judicials and then I explained why I did that because I wanted to match what it says. And I, I, I get frustrated at this when they don't at least get close. And you know, that one is so far from this one that it's not even the same verse. Anyway, I'm sorry to divert on that, but I, I get upset at these things because I, I want people to have care with the word. It's a precious word. And when it's not handled properly, it, it, it bothers me. Anyway, uh, Paul has just noted the repayment by God with tribulation of those who troubled the believers. As the epistle is written for the entire church age, it is a time that lies ahead and in which the world will be judged for its treatment of believers. Okay, um, let me make a little note here. Um, this becomes more evident as the words of this verse continue to unfold. He now states believers will obtain the opposite of the tribulation. The world will be receive, will receive by saying, and to give you who are troubled rest. So let me go back and read that again just so you can see what I'm talking about. Um, verse 7, right? Yep, it says, and to give you, uh, i got to go back to 6 so you see that. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Okay, so um, the word rest here is used only five times in Scripture. Once in the book of Acts and four times by Paul. It gives the sense of relief or freedom. It is a type of rest that occurs when one lets loose something tense. So you, you think of a taut rope holding a boat and you let it go. Okay, that would be the rest. It's the tension is gone. A person who has held a bow, that's a better example right here from eight years ago, a person who has held a bow and an arrow until the strain builds up is giving this type of relaxing ease when he lets go of the arrow. You got that tension, you let go, and now it's eased or given rest. All right, so um, this is what it will be given to those who face the stress of the world, which comes against faithful Christians. Paul then says this will occur with us. He is specifically speaking of himself, Silvanus, and Timothy. His words give the sense of the gathering together of all believers, those who first suffered tribulations and those who then saw their trials and were willing to also endure what they saw by receiving Christ. They will together be given relief from those who troubled them. And all of this is set to occur, Paul's words, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. The Greek literally reads at the apocalypse of the Lord Jesus. Apocalypse means the unveiling or the revealing, okay? So apocalypto, we think of it as being the word that means that bad things are going to happen. Well, bad things are going to happen at the apocalypse of, uh, apocalypse of Jesus. But uh, once you get off on a word, it's very hard to get it back. Anyway, um, bad things will happen at that time, but the apocalypse is his unveiling, his revealing, okay? It is a different term than is normally used of the word advent of Christ. The advent of Christ is, you know it, don't you? You've sent out a commentary on it one time, parousa, the, the advent of Christ. That denotes presence. On the other hand, the word apocalypse gives a more striking concept of the appearance or manifestation of Christ. It is a period where Christ will be revealed as the one supreme and all-powerful ruler of the world. All-powerful in the Greek is? 
Well, no, the Greek word uh, omnipotent, it is pantokrator, the ruler of all, okay? Anyway, but yes, um, omnipotent in, in English. Thus, this appearance here is speaking of something different than the rapture itself, which he already described in 1 Thessalonians 4. However, Paul uses the name Jesus to help the believers identify more closely with his human nature. Despite what is coming, we have a Lord who first personally suffered for his people. We were, um, uh, Sergio always sent me a, a, just a little portion of a video that he had done for somebody in Israel, uh, one, of, uh, one of the people that he's an evangelist. He's a Jewish guy that evangelizes Jews. And anyway, he, uh, he sent me a portion of a video. And I don't remember what the context was, but he was showing this guy uh, areas around Bethlehem and around uh, Ramat Rachel and all these little areas right in the area of Bethlehem. And he's, he's saying the elevation is here and he's doing all this stuff explaining something to somebody, which I didn't have the context of what he was telling him. All I had was the video. And all I could think about, and I emailed him, or I messaged him back, all I could think about while I was watching this was not what Sergio was talking about. I couldn't care about the elevation of this, and that. none of that mattered to me. I was looking at the place where Jesus was born, and I kept thinking, he really, really came. He really came. God united with human flesh, and he really came and he lived in this place. It was hot. It was dusty. It, you think of the time. He could have come now and had a car. He could have come now and lived in air conditioning, right? He could have come in the 1800s and, you know, in America. And he, there could have been a lot of different places that he could have come and he could have had a lot easier go of it. He went to a land with thorns and thistles. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that. It's the most thorny, painful place on the planet. When you walk in the woods or in the, the wilderness, it's just hot, long walks. I mean, you got to go from Nazareth to Jerusalem every year. They walked all the way and they had a donkey maybe for the old people or whatever or their supplies, but he really came and he did this. He did this. In that spot where Sergio's just doing this analysis of these, these things and, you know, tilting the Google camera like this and, and I, I, I couldn't have cared at all about that except that Jesus really came. And yes, he did. as it says, he suffered among us. Yes. It, it really happened. It's not something that's just a, a, a thing that we read about and we kind of push back into the back of our minds like, you know, a, a novel or something or maybe even something that's real that just happened that we have no, no connection with. There's a real connection between you and your sinful state and him coming and having lived out the life that he lived. Touch so. me, Thomas said. Yeah. Touch me and see. See. <laughs> yeah, a spirit doesn't have, yeah. Uh, or, uh, yeah, doesn't have bone and flesh or whatever he said. And he flesh ate a fish and, to prove it. He ate a fish, that's right. <laughs> so uh, he suffered. When his people now suffer, he can empathize with them. And he will then be faithful to fully repay those who have persecuted his beloved church. It will be a time when he is, as Paul says, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Again, the term in Greek more literally says, with the angels of his power. These are angels which serve the Lord and which exercise his great power for his sovereign purposes. They are given his commands and they execute his judgments according to his words. 
Jesus speaks of them in Matthew. Jude speaks of them as well. And in the book of Revelation, we are given exacting insights into what they will accomplish at the Lord's direction. If you look at the verses that we just looked at, six last week, seven right now, and you say that we are going to go through any of the tribulation period, you don't understand what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians. Not in chapter 1, and certainly not in chapter 2. It is as clear. Let me read it again, just so you can see this. Okay, you've got the word parousia. Christ's manifestation is coming. And then you've got the word apocalypto. And they're separate words given for separate reasons. I'll take you back to five, which he started at, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He's saying that we're going to be in our rest with Christ when the tribulation comes on the earth, the apocalypse of Jesus. And that's why it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ at the end of the Bible. Because this is what's going to happen on the earth because the earth rejected his coming. They rejected his church, which has been proclaiming him for 2,000 years. They will now suffer the consequences of that rejection. It has to end at some point. You know, you look at the world and you say, well, next year we'll do this. And eventually, it doesn't matter if it's five years or if it's 5,000 years or if it's 50,000 years. Eventually, things will wear down where you don't have any more supplies. There's no more copper to come out of the ground. There's no more of this. There's no more of that. Everything will eventually be used up. There'll be no more oil. And you can say, sure, but we can replace it with something else. Well, can you? Eventually, like the uh, second law of thermodynamics, everything will eventually wear down where it's not possible. And it's not going to get to that point. The Lord is going to cut things short because he's working with a redemptive plan. It's over a set amount of time, okay? And so it has to end at some point. And we can say, you know, it's not fair for God to judge the world now because there's more people that could be saved. That will always be the case. That There will never be a time where more people couldn't be saved. As long as people continue to have children, there will be a time where more people could be saved. There has to be a point, and God has predetermined those times. If you don't believe that, go back and look at what he says to Jeremiah. I'm going to punish the nation of Israel for 70 years. He knew in advance how long they were going to be punished. And then at the end of those 70 years, what did Daniel do? He said it's been, according to Jeremiah, 70 years. He got down and he prayed the prayer, asking the Lord to keep his promises. There is a set plan that the Lord already has. And when he says that we are not going to be a part of that tribulation, and those angels start getting introduced right in chapter 4 through 19, that means we're not going to be here. Not for part of the tribulation, not till the mid of the tribulation, not to the end of the tribulation. It's not going to happen because the Lord has said it in his word. People don't want to believe their view is wrong. But if you believe in a mid-trib rapture or a post-wrath rapture or pre-wrath rapture, I'm sorry, then you're wrong. You need to understand that you are wrong. You will not get out of the Bible what you were supposed to get. Um, one of the people that critiqued my last rapture thing that I did about a year and a half ago, so I need to do another one, just a new video, just to update it. And he critiqued it, and he said that um, 
uh, I said, Charlie Garrett said, that the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. They are not written to the church. I said that. And then he went to Matthew 24 and he started reading and he says, well, that sounds like he's speaking to us. That's because you want it. You want to believe it that way. But if you look at it and you properly evaluate it, the context, not the words that you're looking at, like, you know, change or transform or whatever we were talking about a minute ago. If you look at the words and then you look at the greater context, the greater context says that he's speaking to Israel. The church hasn't been introduced yet. That's right. You take those and you apply them to that. But if they believe that Jesus is speaking about the church in Matthew 24, then they can come up with their faulty doctrine and say, see, it's a mid-trib or a pre-wrath tribulation. Because? Because they have mishandled the context. Context is always, always king. He is speaking to a group of people about what is going to happen to them in the end times. He's not speaking to the church, which hasn't even been introduced yet. Okay? Um, I will talk about that. Is that in this sermon this week, or I think it's next week's sermon. Next week's sermon, I will talk about that. Um, How uh, people that say that the church replaced Israel put themselves in there, but the new covenant is established before the church. So the church can't be. You can't have the church inserted there because it didn't exist until after the establishment of the new covenant. Everybody see that? You can't insert something before it existed. But that's what they do. And so they say, well, see, the church has replaced Israel. You can't do that. That's that's a category mistake. You're taking one category and you're shoving it in where it does not belong. Whoops. So anyway, um, the point is that Paul is being, he can't be any clearer. He cannot be any clearer with the words that he is using. This is my commentary, not the Bible. But the words that he is using, he could not be any clearer to people. That this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. This belongs to you. This belongs to them. There is no interaction between the two. That's how clear he is. And yet people ignore this. Okay, It doesn't speak directly about these things, and so they just say, well, that's not as important as... You know, the verses that I'm uh, looking for over here um, uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2. And then I'm going to, sorry, i got to pick that up and it's round so it's not picking up easily. Anyway, um, okay, so. This um, is flat. You've never That is, oh yeah, that's easier to pick up actually. What is that? Oh, oh, I got the directions here for uh, uh, Voice of the Martyrs, but I got that in my computer. So if somebody wants, I forgot that I printed that off as well. If somebody wants that, I can send that to you. So please think about writing these people in prison. I'm glad that I dropped that because I forgot that I had that there. I've got all the directions. If you want to write somebody, let me know and I will get you a copy of that. Anyway, um, once again, I'll read this. Again, the Greek term literally reads, I read that, Jude speaks of it, and in the book of Revelation, we are given exacting insights into what they will accomplish at the Lord's direction, meaning the, the angels, the angels of his power, okay? That's what the book of Revelation is telling us. It's telling us that this is the tribulation period. If this is the tribulation period, and that is at the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, it doesn't pertain to us because we are in our rest. And where does that rest come from? Hebrews 4, verse 3. Two or three. Three, yeah. Well, let me read it to you. It's, it's so short and it's so simple. I don't know how people can't get this. And they spend the rest of their lives observing the Sabbath. They spend the rest of their lives 
not eating pork, which is so good. You know what happened? While, while I'm looking for this right now, I'm going the wrong way. While I'm looking for this, I will tell you the great thing about being in Jesus. Yesterday, Hidako said to me, there's a big crab out there and it's eating a fish. And she's probably gonna feel bad about this. Um, and I, I, I was sitting there and I thought, well, what is she telling me? And then I realized she wants me to get a crab. And so I went out there and this crab had this fish and it was swimming with it, this big fish, and he's swimming with it. And I'm like, sorry, buddy. And so I took my net and I tossed it out there. I got the fish, which we threw back in because it was dead. And the biggest blue crab I've ever caught in my life. Wow. Well, he was dinner last night. Uh, if I was under the law, I wouldn't be eating that crab. And I can tell you what, I feel bad for people that, that haven't learned this verse right here. These words from this verse. For we who have believed do enter that rest. That's it. You believe in Jesus Christ, you enter the rest of God. All the pictures of the Sabbath of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. The mandatory Sabbath of the law, Leviticus 23, which is described, is fulfilled. That's a feast of the Lord. That's not a feast of Israel. That's a feast of the Lord. The Lord came to fulfill the feasts. And in fact, if he didn't fulfill those feasts, all eight of them, the Sabbath and the other seven annual feasts, if he didn't fulfill those, then we have no hope in this world. And people say, well, we're still waiting for the Feast of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Atonement. And yeah, Rosh Hashanah, uh, Atonement, and Sukkot. We're still waiting for those to be fulfilled. He fulfilled these at his first advent, and he will fulfill those in his second advent. If that is true, that Jesus Christ died for nothing. Because when he hung on the cross, he said, it is, is finished. finished. He was talking about the law of Moses. There are no feasts that are yet to be fulfilled. They have been fulfilled, okay? There may be a future, uh, you know, something connected with that day that's gonna happen, but the feast itself is done. The Sabbath is fulfilled. If you are trying to please God through Sabbath observance, you are unpleasing to God because you haven't trusted in Christ who has done the work for you, okay? For we who have believed do enter that rest. And that's what Paul is speaking about right there. We will enter the rest of God by faith in Christ. And someday we will be in that rest, the actual rest that we're only positionally in right now in God's mind. We will actually be in it. It's like when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are sitting in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Anybody? Do you now. feel like it? No, sure but he not. says it, we are right now. In God's mind, in his thinking, because of what Christ has done, we're already assigned in the heavenly places. It's already done. We don't have to earn it. It is already done. Okay? But we're not there. It's the same thing with the rest. We have entered his rest. We're just not there. So there's, there's the approval of it, which is done, and then there's the entrance into it, which is coming in the future. And it's that simple, okay? But these words here tell us that it is a pre-tribulation rapture, 100%. Okay, so if anybody comes to you and they say, well, I, you know, I, I believe in a mid-trib, just take them here and say, if you can't understand basic English, do study on the Greek because the Greek will even further clarify it like the words he's using. And if you still don't believe, then you're... You're <laughs> just unwilling. To you're believe. just unwilling to... Yeah, exactly. Anyway, life application. 
as the world continues to tailspin into more and more perversion, I typed this, what, eight years ago? Right. I, I can't even believe what's happening now. God's people can expect to be faced with more and more persecution. But the Lord is not uncaring about this, just the opposite is true. His plans and purposes are being fulfilled and we have to live through them. We have to live through what's going on in the world until the day he says, I will now reveal my son. I will now bring judgment on the earth. Okay, we have to go through it. But there is a point where he is going to say, my son is now going to be revealed for who he is and I am taking my church home. Okay, that's what's gonna happen. This and this, and they're not going to overlap. They're gonna be separate, okay? So, um, uh, but the Lord is not uncaring about this. Just the opposite is true. His plans and purposes are being fulfilled even through our times of trouble. But he will also faithfully execute judgment on those who persecute his people. Don't think the Lord has abandoned you. He has not. Okay, and once again, voice of the martyrs, he has not abandoned one of those people that is being persecuted for his faith. Yes? He says mighty angels. Uh, Lord of hosts, that's the mighty angels? Well, the Lord of hosts, uh, Sabaoth, that would be Jehovah Sabaoth, okay? And that means the hosts or the armies yeah. of the. Yeah. Yes. Bringing this, the Lord of Hosts is bringing this. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. but you know, host means more than just angels. I mean, in the Old Testament, the host can be the stars or the host of heaven, okay. right? And so, uh, it, it depends on the, what is being said. Okay, what is the context? But yes, in this case, he is the Lord of Hosts. He is the um, James is the only one I believe that uses that term in the New Testament. I could be wrong, but I think when James says the Lord of Sabaoth. Sava, I think he's the only one that uses that term. Now, the Greek term uh, is probably used somewhere else, but that's the Hebrew term brought into the Greek. So I don't know. I don't remember all this, and I'd have to study again because there's way too much in the Bible for me to remember it all. But uh, yeah, the Lord of hosts in that case, he is the Lord of all of the hosts of heaven. Depends on what host you're talking about in the particular context at that time. You remember a lot, brother. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know. You know, I get your studies. And I think, boy, I, I really didn't know that, or I forgot that. I mean, every time you send something out, there's always something new. I sent you a one-line uh, response today. Something was in there that just caught my eye. I, I just, it, there's, there's so much, and it's not just the Bible itself, although the Bible is all that matters in and of itself. It's the analyses of people and the way that they word things that quite often is really striking. You know, I, yeah, that's right. I just had, like, you know, not to argue it, but that guy said, well, what if our bodies are left behind? And that's why I thought, you know, I, I, I just never really thought of it. I'd never given it any consideration. And, I'm, you know, you got it in your mind after hearing forever people talking about, you know, we're going to go up and we'll all disappear. It's just kind of what you think. But I don't know now. I, I mean, when it says to exchange one thing for another, I would be more willing to accept what I never accepted before. But once again, I haven't done a full study on it. That's just what I've done over the past set of five days. Luke, when the, the angels appeared, did it, did it say the host of heaven sank there too in, in Luke 2? Uh, uh, yeah, probably. And that would be the angels. Um, yeah, and the whole heavenly host. I think you're right. Luke, um, we'll go there right now just because it's so exciting. Um, Luke 21, 20, 10, 3. Okay, here we go. Um, and it says, behold, where is that? Uh, dun, dun, dun. 
Uh, glory. Okay, do not be afraid. Of the heavenly host, 13. Yeah, okay, 13. I was just there in 12, 13. Yep, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God. That's, you know, we're talking about this, but that's what I was just talking about a minute ago with Sergio's video yeah. of that area. I'm, you know, because he showed Shepherd's Field and, you know, and he's giving all this analysis. And all I could think of was what this word tells us actually happened. You know, it's not some funny thing that we talk about that has no bearing on reality. It has absolute bearing on every single thing that happens in our lives. And it will always be that way forever. For all of eternity, what happened in that little piece of land where the heavenly host came and said, glory to God in the highest, we're going to be thinking that forever and ever. Oh, I look at my hair standing up all over. It's just, it's unbelievable. Yes. Yep. And singing, and we what we were singing was Lord God of Hosts. Right, that's right, and that you know that probably Martin Luther that one song he might have used that yeah. too I think. Um, uh, mighty God, a mighty fortress. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, so, let, me, let me find it for you. Uh, no, don't do that. Um, okay, um, one eight. One eight. This is a scary verse. He will punish those who do not know God not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In flaming fire, from your last verse, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, there has to be a caveat in this, which is there will be tribulation saints. They will eventually obey the gospel of right. the Lord Jesus Christ. But they are going to go through the tribulation because they did not believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ when they should have. Okay, um, you know, I, I, I know I've said this recently, but I gotta say it again, is that people say that if you've heard the gospel before the rapture, you'll never be saved. That is so far from reality sure. of what God is doing that I don't know how anybody can make that conclusion, but entire books have been written about, it. literally entire books have been written about how if you, and you know, I think that's people just trying to urge people on, but the people that need to be urged on are never gonna read that stupid book anyway. So it's not helping anything to, to write a book about something that has no relevance to people's lives. They're gonna come to Christ when they do. But there has to be a place where the tribulation saints come from. It's not just, in other words, it says there's this great white multitude that comes out of the tribulation, right? There has to be a place where they come from. It's not like God just created a bunch of people and said, okay, you're the great white multitude. They have to come out of the earth, out of the people that are left behind, okay? Who is the most likely to come to Christ? Jews. Well, I would say the people that have heard the Jews, one-third of them will come through the tribulation. We know that. But I would say the people that have heard the gospel, that rejected the gospel, and suddenly realized that they missed the boat. They got to come out from somewhere. Right. It's like I said, God's not going to just pull them off of Venus and send them down to Earth and say, "Okay, you're the tribulation saints." There has to be a great multitude that are willing to lose their head and not take the mark of the beast. Right. Who are they? The saints under the altar. Yeah, 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 yeah. How long, Lord? Yeah, yeah. Right. But those people had to die for their faith first. Yeah, right. Okay. Which ones are the most likely to? Certainly not going to be Pope Francis, right? He He's going to be like, 
I'm the faithful Christian. I didn't get taken, and so that rapture never happened. He's going to be a great deceiver. There's going to be this great deception because he's going to say, well, that didn't happen, or, you know, he's going to go on about his life. It's going to be the people that cared, but they just didn't care enough to change their lives and to, to call on Jesus. You know, I could be completely wrong on that, but I don't see it. I don't see people suddenly coming to Jesus from nowhere, and I don't believe in this extra biblical Jesus popping into people's heads and converting them stuff. I don't believe in that either. People are going to have to come to Christ through, uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing through the, by the word of God, okay? They're going to realize that they were wrong and they're going to make a commitment and they're going to stick to it and lose their heads, okay? It's just what's going to happen. Anyway, um, the flaming fire here belongs to the angels, not to the judgment of the angels, uh, to the judgment of the angels. Thus, there should be a comma after fire instead of before it. Let me read that because um, uh, just so you... NIV took care of that. They yeah, in the last that's sentence. right. This one says, inflaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on, the, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so it should say inflaming fire. How was it? Did I say that? Um, uh, uh, yeah, the, the comma, but it goes after, right? Inflaming fire here belongs to angels not to the judgment of the angels. That's right. Okay. Thus, there should be a comma after fire instead of before it. Okay. In the Old Testament, angels are known as seraphim or burning ones. Much of the tribulation judgment does not come in the form of fire. Thus, there would otherwise be an inconsistency in the text. These powerful angels display a burning aura around them. Okay. That's what the burning is speaking of. All right, their judgments will be poured out on the world according to the descriptions found in the book of Revelation. Some of them will pour it out on the land. Some of it will pour it out on the sea. You know, you've got the plagues. You've got the uh, war. You've got all these different judgments, these things coming upon the world. It's not specifically fire. Fire will be some of the judgment, but there'll be other types of judgment. That's what the point is here. So the the... Uh, angels are the ones that are seraphim. They're burning ones. They're the ones that display the glory of God. You have something. I know you did, Burke. No? no? Oh, okay. All right. Um, it, you looked like you were anxious to say something. Um, much of the tribulation... Oh, I said that. Um, these powerful angels display a burning aura around them. Their judgments will be poured out on the world. I've read that too, according to descriptions found in the book of Revelation. They will be, as it says, taking vengeance. However, the word taking is not appropriate. It implies personal vindictiveness, a characteristic that is not found in the true God. If you want personal vindictiveness, you can go to Islam. That God is vindictive, all right? The God of the Bible is never vindictive. He is holy, his holiness has been violated, and therefore he must judge that sin. He does not do it in a sense of being vindictive, okay? I'm going to get you. That's not the way God is. And, you know, often we, we talk about it like that. I can't wait till they get their judgment from God. And it makes it sound like God is going to be vindictive on him. That's not the way that God operates. God judges because he must judge. As I said before, you know, God is holy. God is righteous. God is merciful. God is love. God is um, uh, just. He is true. You've got all these attributes. And there's a tension between all of them. All right? God is truthful, and he is going to fulfill his word, but at the same time, it says that he's gracious, okay? He wants to give grace to his people. He's holy. He cannot associate with that which is unholy. All of these things cause a tension between us and him. 
The only way for that tension, which we can know exists without any Bible, without ever having the Bible, we can deduce these things. The only way that these things can be resolved, that tension between God's various characteristics, is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the only way. He is grace, and so he sends his son to the cross. He is merciful. Our punishment is meted out on a substitute. He is loving. He wants to have a relationship with us, but he can't because he is just. Because he's loving, he can resolve that through the cross. His justice can be resolved, so he does not violate his righteousness. All of this tension, if you think it through without ever having the Bible, there must be a way that we can be reconciled to God. There is only one way that it can happen. It's not through Islam. It's not through Buddhism, you know, earning your way and moksha and the chakra and all these different things that they have. It's not going to work because God is. And what he is is displayed in his creation. I know that he's loving because there's love in the world. I know that he is caring because we care. We can't have an attribute that God does not possess. And so all of these things are intention. Jesus Christ is the answer. The cross of Christ resolves all of them, and none of them are left unresolved in that. So if we can remember that, if we can remember the nature of God, when we talk to people about God, we can not make the mistakes or you know, not be able to adequately describe what is going on. God is not vindictive, and he will never be vindictive. You, you've done a good study on that, on that blackboard. Yeah, I'll do it on the blackboard one of these days. I almost stopped and did it right now, but I thought, oh, it's, it's empty. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's empty. We'll see if we have time to get that in a minute. Um, I'm in the middle of a thing here, and um, uh, let's see here. It implies personal vindictiveness, a characteristic not found in the true God. The Greek reads giving or rendering, not taking. He's not taking vengeance. He's rendering vengeance because that is what he must do. If he doesn't render vengeance on the world that has rejected his son, that has maligned and abused his church, then he is not God. Because in the word, he says, I'm going to do these things for you. You are my people, etc. And he also says it about Israel, by the way, so much for replacement theologians. But, you know, somebody emailed me today. Oh, it's so nice to hear from him. I haven't heard from him forever. He emailed and he said, listen, somebody used Joshua 20, 21 something. Um, I can't remember the exact verse. It was like 2134, whatever. And he said, uh, he said, this guy is a replacement theologian. And he says, that verse explains this. And it said, Thus the Lord has fulfilled all of his promises to you. Right? You know that verse where he's talking, Joshua speaking to the people, and he says, the Lord, Yeah, he's speaking to Israel, and he says, See, that proves that the church has replaced Israel because he's fulfilled all of his promises. And I thought, what a sorry verse to use. That's completely out of the context. He's saying that the Lord has said that he would lead you into the promised land. He led them into the promised land. He said he would go before you. He went before them. When you disobey, I will pull away from you. He did. Okay, all it happened at, when they failed to uh, Achan, the son of Carmi, right? He, he took the stuff and the Lord was not with them. He, that's a promise, by the way. It's not like he's not keeping a promise. He says, if you disobey, I'm going to, do, and he fulfilled his promise because he's just holy. He had to do that, okay? So Achan violated the haram. It's a 
God turned from him until they got rid of the person that did that thing. He's showing us his holiness in there. Everything that the Lord said he would do, he did. That doesn't mean that everything is done. They've got another thousand years of Israel history recorded after Joshua, almost a thousand years. Or maybe it is a little, it's right about a thousand years, okay? And the guy pulls that verse out and he says, here, See? this proves that the church replaced Israel because he fulfilled all of his promises to Israel. There's a million more promises in the law coming. And he says, ah, I, I, this is how crazy people can be. Right. You talk about out of context, go ahead, you got to. First Kings 8.56, not one of his promises has failed. Absolutely. And the, he's talking to Israel. He's there. talking to Israel. Not one of his promises has failed. And guess what? That included bad as well as good. Yeah. When they disobeyed, they got their just due. We're going to see that next week. Next week, uh, verses 2, 1 through 10. It's called the Weepers. That's the name of the sermon, the Weepers. They go to Bochim, right? It means weeping. That's a great, great passage. I just, it's so exciting going through the Bible. It's, it's so exciting. I just, I, I, I lay in bed at night and I just think, he's given us the most precious word. Anyway, we're going to see that next week. You guys didn't do what you were told, therefore. And they go out and they weep. And so they call the place Bochim because the people are weeping, right? He kept his promise to them, good and bad. If you do this, you'll get this. If you do this, you'll get that. I don't understand how people can take something so out of context and say, this is my doctrine. I don't get it. But I, I told the guy, I said, I'd love to hear his justification for that. I mean, I already know the words, you know, he's fulfilled his promise and so it's over, but whatever. Okay, anyway, I know that was a distraction, but I'm, I'm just burning over that. I'm just, uh, okay, um, taking vengeance should be giving or rendering vengeance. God is not punishing because of a personal grudge against offenders. Instead, he is assigning the unrepentant world their just due, and each man will receive that just due for not ascribing to God what is appropriate and for just repayment of those who trouble his people. Okay, he's not being vindictive. Let me show you something about I just said, just punishment. Let me take you to Revelation chapter 19. All right, I'm just going to read. I could cite it to you, but I'm going to read it right out of the Word. So it's verse 10 I'm looking for. Where are you? Okay. Nope, that's not the one I want. So I'm glad that I, I didn't miscite the verse. It's the one where he says, um, uh, I was going to say 19.10, and it's not. It says that um, they were seared with heat because they did not give glory to God. All right. I, I said 1910, and I'm glad that I went to check that because I would have given you the wrong verse. But anyway, it's right in there. Burke will find it while we're doing this. But uh, the whole point of it is that people are getting what they deserve. You talk about global warming, what they're talking about right now. Global warming is not giving glory to God, and they will be seared with heat because of it. That is global warming. It has nothing to do with carbon fuels and electric vehicles. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with our failing to give God the just due that he deserves. That is global warming in a nutshell. Yes? He's not, I know what you're going to say. The Old Testament uses the word vengeance. 
vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But what is the context of that vengeance? That's the point. What is the context of the vengeance? It's because his glory has been violated. It's not that he's arbitrarily pointing and saying, I'm going to get you, you little twerp. Once again, there's a tension. God loves that person. He doesn't love you any more than he loves Adolf Hitler. And he doesn't love Adolf Hitler any more than he loves you. He loves you just as much. But Adolf Hitler has done something worse. And therefore, his punishment must be rendered on him. But if Adolf Hitler, here we go, if Adolf Hitler called on Jesus, would he be forgiven? There you go. God is loving, but he must judge sin. He's got to be have vengeance poured out on somebody that sins. If you sin greatly, many blows, right? Don't sin greatly, less blows. Okay, that's just an example that Jesus is giving. But the point is that God is meeting out on us what we deserve. Not what he's angry at in the sense that I'm going to, more than you deserve. Vengeance in what you're thinking of right now is more than you deserve. Nobody will ever get more than what they deserve, ever. The person that sins against the Lord will be held accountable for his sin. But when we use a word in our mind, like vengeance, we have to understand it from God's perspective. I have violated God's glory. I have not given him the glory he is due. If I don't come to Jesus, all the wrath that I deserve will be meted out on me. If I come to Jesus, it's all forgiven. And it doesn't matter if your name is Tom Alley or Jim Dwyer or Adolf Hitler or even Joseph Stalin. It doesn't make any difference. If Joseph Stalin had killed a lot more people, I'll bet, than Adolf Hitler, hundreds or tens of millions, okay? He would be forgiven. But don't we have to repent? Repentance and salvation are different boxes. Okay, and this is something that people get wrong all the time because they're taught this in church. Okay, not that, think of it this way. It says that you are saved by grace through faith. Okay, this person here is a nice guy. He doesn't do a lot of bad stuff. This person here is a really bad guy, okay? They both come to Jesus on the same day. They both say, I believe that I've sinned, right? Okay, this guy doesn't have a lot to repent on because he hasn't been that bad of a guy, but he may actually be worse off after the salvation than this guy because this guy now says, I've done all of this horrible stuff wrong in my life and I'm gonna find out what offends God. This guy never does, he's just saved. And so he continues to do the little things that he never should have done in the first place because he hasn't gone to Bible study and learned the Bible. And so he's still offending God. He's forgiven, don't get me wrong, but he's saved. This guy has a complete change in his life, not before he was saved. If I say I have to do this, then I'm the one that's healing myself. You don't go to the doctor and say, I just got myself cured and so now I need to get a prescription. You go to the doctor and he gives you the prescription and then you get cured. Repentance, the only thing the word means, and this is where people get that wrong. Repentance means- Change your mind. Change your mind. That's all it means. When in Acts chapter two, verse 38, Peter said, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And everybody says, see, you need to repent. One, he's not speaking to us. He's speaking to the Jewish people that had just crucified Jesus. They had to repent of that because they said, he's not our Messiah. They have to acknowledge him as the Messiah. Otherwise, they can't be saved. So repent, 
be baptized to prove that you acknowledge it before your people Israel. We're not even, the Gentiles weren't even introduced until Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans, and really until Acts chapter 9, or 10, I'm sorry, with um, uh, Cornelius' household. And what happens with Cornelius? He, has, he didn't repent of anything. They walked in, he had a vision. They said, somebody's gonna come and talk to you. Peter gets a vision, you need to go talk to this person. He goes up to Cornelius' household. The guy says, what are you here for? He says, let me tell you about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus and all he does, all he does, if you, he talks, you know, like when we talk the gospel to somebody, we'll have a conversation. But in that conversation, we will give three basics. Christ died for your sins, meaning you're a sinner. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. And during this short conversation, that's all he does is talk to them. They, they don't know any doctrine. They don't have one letter to tell them what to do. Nothing. And it says the Holy Spirit came down on them. No, you do not have to repent in order to be saved. You believe in order to be saved. But Jim Dwyer is given the gospel. He says, I, I, I don't need that in my life. Two years later, somebody comes to him and says, Jim, let me tell you about Jesus. He now needs to repent, not of his sin, but of his unbelief. He didn't believe, and now he must believe. It's the same thing that happened with I'm Israel in Acts chapter mind. 2. He's changing his mind about Jesus. Right. The only time that Paul ever brings in repentance toward God uh, in his speaking, the only time he does it is he says repentance toward God. And what does that mean? I'm talking to a Muslim. A Muslim believes that Allah is God, right? He needs to repent of his belief in who God is, and he needs to turn to Jesus. When I talk to a Buddhist, he needs to repent. He needs to change his mind about who God is to him. That's it. What you need to do is believe in Jesus. So when you listen to Ray Comfort, a lot of people like to listen to Ray Comfort, He's, he makes the same mistake every time he evangelizes somebody. He talks to him and he gives them the gospel and they're very excited. And then he says it every single time. You need to repent of, and because he's got this Australian accent, and he blows the entire, the entire thing and he goes back to works. He does it every single time he speaks to people. He gives this marvelous presentation. He gets them right to the door of salvation. And then he turns around and he leads them down a false path every single time. You need to repent of your sin. I don't even know what my sin is. All I know is I've offended God. Yes, I've done this and this, but I have 852 other sins that I need to learn about. Do you see? That is the answer. And, and to add to that, it's like, okay, so you had the two people, one not so good, one, one really sort bad. Of good. And, and then they, they both get together and they, at the same day they, be, they believe in Christ. But what they do with themselves after, after that is where things, you'll go to the second judgment, which is the Bema. The Bema seat. So, Act, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 9 through 11, I believe. Anyway, that comes after. Right. And that is what your walk right now, your walk right now, your walk, your walk, your walk right now will matter forever at the Bema seat. You will spend the rest of your life in whatever state you have merited based on your what you have done after coming to Jesus Christ. Yeah, and 1 Corinthians is like who laid the foundation. It's Christ. Jesus. He is 
the basis of and it's irrevocable basis of your whatever you do with your your belief right and then you build on that that's and right you build a little crap shack that's gonna like 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 burn up where yeah. you're gonna do this like this this mighty thing that's gonna be able to take the, that's the yeah and you know like, and you look at I, I know people love to tear Billy Graham apart especially later in his yeah, life yeah. he seems to have uh, uh, made a couple statements that were just crazy you know that happens when you get old sometimes but he uh, he, he I am certain that man was saved, that he loved the Lord, and he worked tirelessly. He brought hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people to the Lord, maybe millions, okay? He was building on his original salvation, which came without any merit, without any repentance, unless he once heard the gospel and then had to repent of having turned down the gospel. You know, I don't know what his conversion experience was like, but that is the answer to your question. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to divert so much from uh, 2 Thessalonians, but that's important. an important thing. Very. And when I'm asked it, I always want to stop and clarify that for people. The answer is no, you do not re need to repent in order to be saved unless, and then if you have turned down the gospel before, you need to repent of that. You need to readjust your thinking. And if you're a Buddhist, you need to repent of Buddhism. Not of what you're going to do in Christianity, but of your acceptance of who God is and what he has done. And then from there, then you can repent of all the things that you've done. I need to change my mind about how I treated my wife. I need to change my mind about this and about that. And all of those things come afterward, not before. Okay? Salvation is so simple, and we just blow it when we talk to people about it. That's why when I get these tracks, I order them from Crossway. I read the track first. Now I'm just ordering the same one, so I don't have to do this anymore. But I read the entire tract, and if it has the word R-E-P-E-N-T in there, I don't order it. Because all that does is it confuses people. We use the term repent in our modern society in a way that is not intended in Scripture. In Scripture, all it means is change your mind. That's it. Okay, we got to go on. Um, uh, it is for this reason that vengeance will come, and it will come upon those who do not know God. Jesus stated that if one sees him, that person has seen the Father. It is he who reveals the Father to us in a manner that we can understand, and it is he who mediates between God and man, Jesus. Those who reject Jesus do not ascribe to God what is appropriate, and they, in turn, are those who then trouble his people. They are the ones Paul is speaking of. Otherwise, they would be his people, but they are instead at odds with God, enemies of Jesus. This is explicitly stated in the words, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That if you have turned down the gospel, you do not obey the gospel of Jesus. I don't care how much you think you love God. There's people all over the world that say, I love God all the time. If they don't love Jesus, and if they have not come to God through Jesus, they are as far from God as Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or anybody else on this planet. There is no getting closer to God unless you are in Jesus. And then you can get closer and closer and closer for all eternity. But until you have come through Christ, you will never be close to God, ever because that tension still exists that cannot be resolved without the cross of Jesus Christ. It cannot be. By the words here then, we have two different categories. One, those who do not know God. Two, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though the two go hand in hand, they are listed separately 
because there are different types of knowledge in Paul's mind. There are those who know God, even that Jesus is God, but they then do not acknowledge him. That would be like me talking to Jim two years ago. And he says, yeah, I know that, but I just, I, I don't need Jesus. And then two years later, I give it and he says, oh yeah, I, I, I need Jesus. He knew about Jesus. He just never did anything with it. Okay, and there are those who don't know God because they don't know who Jesus is. This then follows through with the next clause. The first category may know God because they know who Jesus is, but they do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They reject the truth of Christ, and thus they reject God. The two categories are necessarily stated separately by Paul. He's doing this on purpose to show that all will be punished because of failing to meet one or the other category. If he said one, people could say, well, I'm not in that category and therefore. Or they could say, well, I'm in this category and therefore. And he gives two categories that basically say the same thing, but coming from a different angle to make absolutely sure that nobody can say, I'm not in that category and I'm in the sweet spot. The words are there for us to understand this. The words of our, Paul's words, of our Lord Jesus Christ are specifically used here to define those who may know the gospel, but who still reject the work of Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, I was watching that guy that I was talking about, about a while ago that Sergio was sending this video work to. He was interviewing people in Israel. He's a Jewish guy. He just is standing on the streets and he just walks up to somebody and they know they're being filmed. They've got a camera and he's talking to him and he's very non-belligerent. He says, you know, I, I, I'm a Jew. He lets that out right away. So they don't, you know, you're a Christian, you're evangelizing. I'm a Jew. This is my background. This is what I believe and this is why I believe it. Okay. And he talks to these people and most of them had no idea that, you know, that Jesus was even Jewish. The word Christ to them is a surname. And he it has to explain to them, do you know what the word Christ means? And they're like, well, it's his name. No, Christ means Messiah. It means Messiah. And so he, and then they'll start asking, well, you know, are, do you identify as a Christian? And he says, well, depends on what you call a Christian. In your mind, a Christian is one thing, but a Christian simply means a follower of Jesus, the Christ. So he says, if you want to play semantics, and he's not, I'm using my language here, but yes, I'm a Christian, but not in the way that you're still thinking. He's explaining this because it's been so drummed into their head that Jesus is the worst thing on the planet. In Israel, you can be a Muslim and a Jew. In Israel, you can be a Buddhist and a Jew. In Israel, you can be any religion you want on this planet and be a Jew. As soon as you say, I accept Jesus as the Messiah, you are to them no longer a Jew. They no longer accept you as a Jew. You are out. They have been going through this now for years and years and years. But they now know who Jesus is. They have the knowledge that Paul is speaking of. They just don't believe it. They now know. Whereas two minutes before, when this guy walked up to him, they didn't even know who Jesus was. They just had a thought in their head that could have been, you know, uh, Sasquatch. They have no idea. They've been told one thing and they have no idea who Jesus is. He has now explained it to him. Now they have a choice to make because he has explained. He's not just the Christ, the Messiah. Your scriptures said that he was going to come before the destruction of the second temple and our rabbis acknowledge that. All of the old rabbis have acknowledged that in their word. 
Messiah must come before the destruction of the second temple. And all of a sudden, they don't want to teach that anymore, but that is in their writings. Okay? They now know what Paul is writing about. So he's giving two categories for a very specific reason. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ are specifically used here to define those who may know the gospel, they just heard it, but who still reject the work of Jesus as Messiah. Those people that heard it, that walked away and said, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. In other words, this includes Jews of the end times who will be destroyed, even two-thirds of the nation, as it says in Zechariah 13.8. we got to finish. we got about three more minutes. With God, there is no partiality, what we were talking about before. No partiality. And both Jew and Gentile are favored only because of their standing with Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. If you don't have a standing with Jesus, you have no standing with God at all. It is true that Israel is back in the land because God has made a promise to them. It is not true at this time in redemptive history. It is not true that they are God's people. We do not want to say that and validate what is not true in them. They are not God's people in the sense that they do not belong to Jesus Christ. They are God's people who will be his people. In other words, we are in heaven right now, but we're not in heaven right now. The Jews were God's people. They are God's people in the sense that they will be God's people, but they are not God's people without Jesus Christ. Everybody got that? So you do not want to validate what they are doing in Israel, and way too many ministries do this. They come out and they say, uh, they're back in the land, they are God's people. And they have now validated who they are, even though they are not. They are God's people in the end times, when they come as a nation to Jesus. So be careful how you word that, otherwise you are validating that which cannot be validated. And that's the nation. That's the, the nation. That's right. Any individual. Okay, that guy is standing there in Israel. He is God's people. He's telling them about Jesus. He is God's people. The people he's speaking to are not until they believe him and accept his gospel or the gospel he's presenting, not his gospel. Okay, anyway, um, uh, no other distinction will save them. Destruction lies ahead for all who fail to come to Christ. All, Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter. They will be destroyed. Life application. If you have failed to come to Christ, through the gospel of Christ. And this includes all who attempt to be justified by works of the law. That's why I hammer this in every single week about the law. Stay away from these people because they will ruin your walk with the Lord. You're not going to lose your salvation, but those people are probably not saved and they're going to make your life miserable. And your walk with the Lord will never be proper if you're trying to observe the law of Moses observing the Sabbath, not eating pork, not eating that delicious crab, simply because the law tells you not to. You are not pleasing to God, you're exactly the opposite, because Christ has already done for you what you never could have done for yourself. You will be left behind at the rapture, you will endure the judgments of the tribulation period. Now would be a good time for you to leave the Hebrew Roots Movement, the Seventh-day Adventists, or any other group who mandate observance of the law in part or in whole. Call on Christ, trust in Christ, rest in Jesus Christ. That is what you need to do. If you will do that, you will be in the sweet spot. You will go to heaven. As far as repenting, you can learn all about that after you come to Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for this precious word. Thank you for the treasures that are in it. Thank you for the many blessings that uh, you promise us because of what Jesus has done. It's not about us. It's not about anything we can do. 
We thank you for what Jesus has done. We certainly lift up Israel. They are your people in the sense that you have covenanted with them and you will bring them into the new covenant. But they've got a road to, to travel until that day. And so we pray for them as a nation, but we also pray for all of the lost in the world. Lord, please uh, be attentive to the needs of those people that are in prisons right now that are suffering for your word and your name. Give them hope even in the times of distress and give them the joy that passes all understanding as they uh, live out their lives until the day you glorify them. And Lord, if we are faced with that same decision that they were once faced with, help us to be strong and to be willing to give up our lives now for the glory of Jesus Christ and set example for others to emulate. May it be so. Give us strength in this, O oh God, and we love you. We praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, boy. Oh, thank you. It was really good. Oh, well, it's the Lord's word. Let's see your break. Break. Okay.